1: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Nina Kim. Raise your hand if you've had this dream. You're in school, the teacher is passing out an exam, and you realize you haven't studied and you're going to fail. Or maybe you're giving a presentation and you're not wearing clothes. Even years after graduating, the stress of school can still follow adults in the form of anxiety dreams. So what's the connection? And why do so many of us have similar ones? And how do they affect the quality of our sleep? We want to explore all these questions and hear what your recurring stress dreams are. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Do you have recurring stress dreams? A New York Times writer shared theirs in a recent piece, writing, I'm a few credits away from graduating from college, and I realize I have a Russian history test that I have not studied for at all. The dream itself wasn't that weird, but what was interesting to us was that an Atlantic writer a week later wrote about their dream, It's the end of the semester, and I suddenly realized that there's a class I forgot to attend, and now I have to sit for the final exam. How do so many people, as unique as our individual experiences are, have the same dream? Is there a collective unconscious? Why do our anxiety dreams involve school, even as, in the case of these writers, they'd graduated from high school or college long ago? This hour, we're talking about our anxiety dreams and the effect they can have on our sleep. And we want to hear from you. What is your recurring anxiety dream? Do they often feature school? Do you have more of them this time of year? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum, or you can call us 866-733-6786. Joining us today are Kelly Buckley, a dream researcher and director of the Sleep and Dream Database. Kelly Buckley, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Dr. Eric Prather, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF, Dr. Prather, really glad to have you here as well.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: And you know what, Dr. Prather, I'm going to start with you just to back up a little bit. Can you explain in lay terms what's happening to us physiologically when we're dreaming?
2: Well, when we're dreaming, right? I mean, our sleep is is really complex. I mean, it's not kind of an on and off switch we kind of close our eyes and then wake back up in the world in the morning. You know, there we go through progressively different stages as we sleep, um, you know, going from light sleep down into deep sleep and cycling up throughout the night, typically in 90-minute cycles. Um, but one of those sections of sleep that we have is called rapid eye movement sleep. And that is where a lot of the dreaming happens. Um, and so, you know, we go through that throughout the night. The second half of the night is uh, disproportionately this REM sleep. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of neurophysiology that's happening, Um, a lot of things that are important for memory and learning that happen during these times, but also the magic of dreaming.
1: Yeah. And the content of the dreams that we're experiencing, Kelly Bulkley, do they come from our daily experiences, as a lot of people assume?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. And and that was a great uh summary of sort of sleep and 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 you know the basic physiology of sleep. So we're we're off to a great start. Um yeah, dreams draw their contents from our our waking experiences, um from our collective uh lives, our lives in our communities and per, uh, more deeply uh inherited instincts and drives and predispositions. So it's all it's all in there. Yeah.
1: Well, we asked our listeners if they wanted to share their dreams before and, of course, during the show. And Norton writes on Instagram, I'm almost 30, and I still have frequent recurring nightmares about tests I didn't study for, homework assignments I forgot to do. Also, bears are trying to kill me for some reason. <laughs> Not sure about the bears, but wow, that sounds, that sounds kind of scary with all of the other stress going on at the same time. But I guess the question is, if it's a lot of our waking experiences, why do a people have dreams about things in their past and in particular what inspired this segment dreams about school kelly bulkley
0: yeah yeah well first because we're going to have it sounds like some some listener dreams and some dream sharing here just to be clear i don't know these dreamers other than what we're, we're we're talking about here so i'm i'm inferring i'm making educated guesses but this is not therapy we're not you know, we're, we're, that's what we're up to here. So yeah. Yeah. Our, no, we're not going to be
1: interpreting that. anyone's specific dreams, more just yeah. um, the phenomenon also, of how they're common, how we have these shared ingredients exactly, to our dreams. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we do, this is humans share, um, even though we have all sorts of differences, we share uh, similar bodies, we share similar life cycle uh, developments, uh, major life markers. Uh, These are the kinds of recurrent human phenomena that tend to be the backbones of our dreams. And so uh, for many people in in this society, uh, school experiences are a a rite of passage, shall we say, a a fundamental part of our upbringing. And uh, so dreams make ample use of that material.
1: And Dr. Prather, is there some truth to the idea that the time of our lives where we're in school that that's a particularly impressionable time and that's why they're so sticky
2: I mean that's a great question i mean obviously a lot happens during adolescence and kind of early adulthood right i mean we go through a lot of changes both in kind of our life experiences but also hormonally and in our sleep i mean you know if anybody has a teenager that's listening you know it's probably hard to get them out of bed on the weekend it's probably hard to get them out of bed Uh, on a school day uh, because we have this experience of uh, what's called delayed sleep phase and kind of this tendency to want to be more of a night owl. But I mean, you know, there are, you know, these experiences that, you know, all of us probably think back on that really stand out from, from those kind of early impressionable um, times. And uh, you know, it's no surprise that they're sticky that way. I mean, they are kind of very meaningful Tag, tagged in our in our lived experience
1: mm-hmm. yeah and maybe kelly bulkley as a stage in our lives where we graduate to the stakes being higher for things if we don't do them
0: <laughs> exactly yeah it's, school is a, a transition from childhood into adulthood um and a lot of the experiences there literally do shape our minds and our aspects of our brain functioning and certainly our social identities um, it's interesting, uh, these kinds of dreams, there's there's a long history. Uh, some research I've done is uh, found uh, reports of uh, anxiety, exam anxiety dreams uh, among people in ancient China, uh, preparing for civil service exams going back thousands of years, uh, where these exams were very important. Uh, you had to study really hard. If you passed, it was great. If you didn't, it was horrible. And people would have Dreams and anxiety, nightmares, uh, both before and after uh, those test-taking experiences. So this is this is a deeply rooted uh, aspect of our, our dreaming. Clearly,
1: yeah. Well, Noel writes, "I find out I did not earn my BA at Cal Berkeley after all. I need to move back into student co-op housing, bringing my husband along to live there too. Also, keep forgetting to make an appointment to find out what class I need to take to graduate." Uh, We're talking about recurring stress dreams, listeners. And if you have one you'd like to share or if you've noticed a pattern in your dreams or any other questions for our guests, Kelly Bulkley, a dream researcher and director at Sleep and Dream Database, or Dr. Eric Prather, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF, you can email us, forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum. or you can call us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So Ted writes, My dream that I've had multiple times over the last quarter of a century working early hours is that I oversleep and it takes forever for me to get to work. In reality, I always arrive when it's dark, but during these dreams, I'm still struggling to get to work, and it's sunny. One thing after another gets in the way, and I don't believe I ever actually arrive at work in the dreams. I can really relate to this, Kelly Buckley, in the sense of you know, this, this phenomenon where I just can't get where I'm going, and also the ph- right. phenomenon of it being related to work, most of us spend many more years working than we do in school. Do you hear about a lot of work-related dreams, and is there a similar connection to school dreams, or is it somewhat different given the time in our lives when we have them?
0: Yeah, it's it's similar in many ways, and, and it's actually an understudied, uh, uh, under-theorized aspect of dream research. Uh, but when I do general data gathering, I ask someone to keep a dream journal over time, there are a lot of dreams about work and they're often anxious dreams. And I I think generally with a lot of this, you know, as as Eric mentioned at the outset about um, sleep and and the nature of sleep, sleep is uh, vulnerable to stress and and dreaming is vulnerable to stress. And so in, I think a lot of the dreams we're talking about here are uh, dreams under some conditions of external stress. And so, dreams respond to stress with these kinds of scenarios like you know are you sure are you sure you set the alarm clock you, maybe you didn't maybe you didn't it would be really bad if you didn't so right that's what the dream the dream does and it's it feels cruel kind of in a, a personal sense but the ultimate idea is my belief about dreaming is that it's ultimately for our health and well-being and so there is a sense in which even though these are unpleasant dreams they are, They're helping us figure out how to deal in the stressful conditions in which we find ourselves.
1: Well, the Sissner writes, I have a recurring dream where I'm trying to run from something dangerous and my legs feel leaden and won't move. Do others have this dream and could it be related to something physiological happening during a sleep cycle? Oh, wow, that kind of weaves it all together. I know we're not interpreting dreams, but Kelly Boagley, do you have some idea about the leaden leg phenomenon well, that so maybe, many people talk about
0: well maybe maybe eric could say something about sleep paralysis or sort of the, the various ways in which the body is paralyzed during sleep that might be relevant here
1: yeah well right. that's I mean, exactly I, the question yeah eric yeah. is it the fact that we're yeah asleep? i mean it,
2: it, it's totally one of those yeah i mean it, you know when i hear something like that i mean i immediately think of sleep paralysis right i mean you know there's a re you know so when we experience rem sleep we have muscle atonia which right. it mean, you know we we are kind of in this paralyzed state, in part because we're, we're, our brain is so active, right? And so we uh, don't want to act out our dreams. And so our bodies have found a way to kind of keep that from happening. In fact, um, there's a, there's a sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder, where people do act out that dream that atonia isn't there. And so, you know, it, it, it sounds to me like, you know, someone might be kind of in, in, in between a little bit there. And kind of experience some of that physiological uh, piece of of kind of an inability to move, but yet still still dreaming.
1: Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And as as I've shared, it is something that I feel like I hear so much. And of course, if we are in a sleep state and our body isn't can't move, we are somehow incorporating that into our dreams. Well, I definitely want to get also more into the the way that our sleep is vulnerable to stress and we'll do that right after the break listeners we're talking with dr prather professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at ucsf kelly bulkley a dream researcher and director of the sleep and dream database and you so stay with us you're listening to forum i'm mina kim You're listening to Form, and we're talking about dreams, though not so sweet, stress dreams to be specific, where they come from, how they affect us while we sleep, and while we're awake. For example, Wendy writes, for many years I had the same dream. I was on an expressway and missed my exit, forcing me to go over a very long bridge. One day it happened. I actually missed my exit and had to go over the bridge, forcing me to pay a toll and make a U-turn after the bridge. I never had that dream again after that. Fascinating. Listeners, if you want to share your dreams with us, you can by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum, or by calling 866-733-6786. We're talking with dream researcher Kelly Bulkley, and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF, Dr. Eric Prather. And we're talking with you, Leah in Sunnyvale. Join us.
5: Hi, thanks. Um, I've had two types of recurring stress dreams. The uh, first one related to my profession as a nurse, where I would go a whole shift um, and not see a patient or forget to administer a patient medications. Um, That would be one type of dream. And then mm-hmm. the other one is the usual, uh, you're running around work or school or something in your underwear.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that one seems to be... Sort of common too, uh, Kelly Bulkley, and I don't know if you've thought about what the connections are to that. Kelly Bulkley, I think of yeah. Can you hear me? Yep, go right ahead. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah generally, like dreams often speak in a, a language of metaphor and symbol. So something, a dream of um, being naked in public is a is a typical kind of dream. It's rare that we actually have an ex, you know, an actual waking life experience of that. So it's more likely that that's a, a metaphorical image expressing feelings, perhaps this is my inference, of uh, vulnerability, exposure. Uh, people can see you know, see me in ways that I don't want them to see me. Um, that, those are typical metaphorical thoughts that come up around dreams of being naked in public. That may or may not apply to you. You know, it's always up to the dreamer what what, what the dreamer feels makes sense. But uh, but the uh, the work uh, being a nurse, and I I, I I can only imagine that's just incredibly intense work. And sp- talk about stressful and responsibilities that are on your shoulders. And as Eric said, the mind doesn't turn off at night. We keep this keeps going while we're sleeping, and our mind is still processing what we've ex- what we've done the previous day, getting us ready for the next day. Um, and just about every profession has its own version of a you know a stress dream like that I've you know I've heard newscasters say you know they're they're in front of a camera and they don't have their script or something you know bus drivers they they get lost on their route so this is I, I hate to say it but it almost sounds like kind of an occupational hazard to have these kinds of dreams as a nurse at least in these circumstances
1: yeah well Leah thanks and uh Dr. Prather, so you study the relationship between stress and sleep. Can you just talk a little bit about what you are finding that's compelling with regard to how stress affects sleep that has really you know, been a focus of your research?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the the things that is the enemy of sleep is that kind of hypervigilance that comes with stress, right? Um, you know, sleep requires us to let go of the day, And, you know, there are some kind of clear autonomic nervous system signatures for that happening. But, you know, I mean, the good news is that, like, at least if you kind of look across the literature, um, oftentimes stress doesn't have a a, a strong daily stress, doesn't have kind of a really strong impact on sleep. Um, Of course, stressors and just kind of living in a stressful world when people are kind of uh, predisposition to be kind of anxious can certainly lead to things like insomnia I mean, you know, insomnia disorder, which is, you know, it's like a – insomnia symptoms is, you know, 30% of the population report kind of difficulties falling asleep, staying asleep, and those are often linked to the stressors of the day. Um, the clear thing that we see in our research is when stressors happen really close to bedtime, that mm-hmm. seems to really impact people's sleep, of course. And then if the stressor is really severe, right, like you get in a car accident or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, what we have found on the, on the, the flip side is that when people – have disturbed sleep, the stressors they feel during the day seem kind of much larger. Mm. Um, You know, really pointing to kind of this bi-directional relationship, this cyclical relationship between sleep and stress, that when people are getting less sleep than they typically do or when it's disrupted, that kind of little things feel like big things to them. And then, of course, those big things may in turn affect their sleep that night.
1: So is that what you mean by the stress and sleep feedback loop?
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, I, I mean, so, you know, they're, they're tied to one another. There's no real reason to, to kind of just study sleep or just study stress. I mean, we live in a 24 hour day and kind of our lived experience impacts our, our nighttime experience. Um, I think the, the, the good way about thinking are, you know, the benefit to thinking about it that way is it really provides two clear opportunities for intervention. Right. I mean, we have, you know, tools for helping people sleep, which in turn can improve their ability to cope with stress during the day. But we also have a lot of stress management skills that we can impart to patients, that in turn can help them more more effectively manage their sleep at night. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, I think it, I think that is all good news, despite the fact that we're kind of all kind of you know battling with with kind of our our the daily slings and arrows and, and kind of the tossing and turning at night.
1: Yeah, that's a nice way to think about it. I understand that you're also involved in research that looks at the intersection of racial discrimination and sleep. <laughs> I am curious what you are learning there and how this connects. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, you know, I mean, sleep, it, the, the ability to have the opportunity for sleep is, is not evenly distributed across the population, right? There are certain groups, BIPOC uh, communities that across the board, get kind of less sleep on average, and their sleep is kind of at a lower quality. And so what's been interesting is those same disparities map onto a lot of health disparities that we see by race. Um, In particular, cardiovascular disease is a good example, um, where black individuals are much more likely to have cardiovascular disease than kind of their white counterparts. And they similarly see the same thing um, with respect to sleep. And the question has been like, why, why does that happen? Um, there's obviously a lot of environmental factors that drive those differences, right? So kind of where you live, where you play, where you work, all of those things kind of feed into how, how we sleep at night, but also kind of the, the, the interactions that we have. And so we've been focusing on the experience of racial discrimination as, uh, potentially being one of the kind of Person-level drivers for someone's sleep at night, and so you know there's been you know studies looking at this where people report on how much discrimination they experience and how how they sleep, and we certainly see a relationship there. But we're uh, in our lab here at UCSF trying to understand this in more an experimental setting. So we actually have a paradigm in which we bring people into the lab and we make them um, experience what's called like a race race-based social stress prior to bedtime, and then we see how that affects their sleep at night, and kind of their cardiovascular Mm -hmm. psychophysiology at night, their blood pressure, all these types of things to really try to understand that link. And then we also have a study where we actually bring people in and we deprive them of sleep, or they sleep normally that night, and then put them through a similar stressor during the day to try to understand Mm -hmm. kind of, if people don't have sleep on board, do they pick up on things? Or do they, or, or does our body react more strongly, which may put us on the path towards um disease outcomes and so we're you know we're taking a more experimental approach but if you look in the population data there's clear relationships of these disparities which uh in my view is 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 an injustice
1: Hmm. we're talking with dr eric prather professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at ucsf and kelly bulkley dream researcher and director at sleep and dream database and you our listeners are joining the conversation let me go to bettina in oakland hi bettina Hi,
5: I'm actually in El Cerrito. Oh, um, I have these dreams every night, like every night. I have school, like I have all of them. I will have a lot of them, a school exam, and I haven't done any of the work and I'm there and nobody knows it yet. It's like I'm trying to hide it, but I can't. I have my teeth crumbling dream where I'm just <laughs> like there. My teeth start crumbling and I'm trying to put them back in. I have a dream where the, my car is going down the hill and there's no brakes. And then I always wake up right when like I would die because I'm about mm. to run into something horrible. Right. Um, and so I'm just wondering uh, it's so it's every night. And the thing is I do have stress in my life, but it's not going away. It's regular stress. Right. Right. And I just, is there some way to train myself to not ha- I can't even remember when I had a good dream I tried really hard to do the active dreaming, and one time it worked a little bit. Recently, I was able to say, "Like this can't, there can't be these giant ants in my kitchen. There can't be," and I knew that, and I was like conscious that this is a dream, but that's as far as I got.
1: Oh, Bettina, Well, I'm so sorry you're having them every night, and it's such a great question in terms of interventions that can be done, Kelly Bulkley.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm sorry to hear that too. That sounds like like yeah, laying down, laying your head on your pillow isn't a, a restful prospect. Um, if if those kinds of dreams are such a recurrent uh, experience, so one one thought, you know, the in those situations, there's a feeling for the dreamer that the, they're kind of trapped in the dreams. The dreams kind of caught them. So to try to create some movement from that, um, there are various ways to kind of bring the dreams out. And so keeping a journal or a sketch pad where you could put the dreams out in the world. If there's someone you could share with whom you could share the dreams, that would be a way of doing it too. So that it's, if nothing else, the dreams aren't entirely in your own own head. They're out a little bit. And once we can look at dreams in that kind of almost dialogical way, uh, new possibilities open up. This and this would be the other question <laughs> I, I'd ask. Um, uh, sorry, my cat just jumped up behind me. I apologize for <laughs> the loud noise. Um, most recurrent dreams actually have some variation. There's there's there are variations on the theme. There's something new, something different, usually. And so I would look at the recurrent dreams if I've written them down or sketched them or something, shared with a friend. And and look at them and wonder what what's the what's the recurrent theme and what's the variation here and what what's the interplay between those? I think if, if I were you, I'd be trying to create some sort of movement in all this. It sounds like it's kind of a a fixed stuck situation. So
1: Kelly Buckley, are stress dreams considered nightmares? What's the difference between a stress dream and a nightmare?
0: It, well, it, it uh, some people would say there's no difference. I mean, it's it's. Uh, yeah. A bad dream is a bad dream. A nightmare, uh, classical definition, is a, a, a frightening dream that awakens a person out of sleep. Um, a stressful dream just could be a dream that's just, uh, there's just a lot going on, the kinds of things we've been hearing, work, driving, school. Um, yeah. th- there does seem to be something with stress dreams that's that's a little more chronic. I mean, nightmares are a part of human life and experience, and sometimes people like their nightmares. I've never heard anybody say they like their stress dreams. So I think that's a, There's this is a cultural phenomenon. I think this is, in some ways, these are all signs of uh, a a culture that creates pervasive feelings of stress among large parts of the population. And these are the symptoms of that, if you will.
1: Well, Keith writes, my dream... Involved me witnessing a mass shooting of police officers in San Jose, where I used to live, and having to dodge them after they chased my family and I, who were in an RV. I don't know if I've ever been in an RV. I woke up before they ever saw me or caught up to me. Eric Prather, I'm so struck by something that Kelly Bulkley said in response um, to Bettina, which is, it must be hard when you lay your head at night. And is it possible that you can create an association with sleep because you have stress? dreams or experience these stressful dreams in your sleep to the point where um, you get stressed at the idea of going to bed.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I in addition to doing research, I also help run an insomnia clinic at UCSF. And and I did want to say for the the caller who just called, I mean, there are kind of behavioral strategies to try to help address at least nightmares, recurrent nightmares. So imaging rehearsal therapy is one of those where you really um, kind of dig into it, and then try to come up with alternate endings and role play those, so that in the moment, you know, your 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 brain has another kind of avenue for uh, kind of um, kind of re, you know resolving that experience. And that's been shown primarily in the context of like people that have post traumatic stress disorder, where nightmares are really common, and it really often requires kind of recurrent types of dreams, so that you can kind of have a theme that you can work with. I'm um, sorry. And forgive
1: and, me, Dr. Prather, but when yeah, should somebody seek something like that kind of therapy? At at what stage do you think that that's something they might consider trying?
2: Yeah, I mean, I so I don't I don't know if there's a kind of clear kind of distinction of when someone until it's, you know, if if it's if they feel like it is so distressing to them or is um, kind of ineff- affecting their daytime functioning um, that, you know, that's a that's a signal for you know but at least exploring um you know possible solutions to it right i mean i think if someone is kind of worried about going to bed because of it um you know is having the, you know panic attacks anxiety about sleep and it's due to these concerns about having these kind of active and scary dreams then you know that that might be something to to look out for and so you know there are certainly um, sleep clinics throughout the Bay Area, UCSF, Stanford, and then you know there are certainly ones that are kind of in private practice around the area where there are these um, you know providers that that can potentially help with that or at least explore with with the person kind of what are what are the options. Um, but then you know specifically related to your question, absolutely, kind of the the recurrence of these types of anxious things can absolutely fragment your relationship with the bed. It turns out that our our bed in particular, but our bedroom more generally, is an incredibly important trigger for bringing on sleepiness and and kind of facilitating someone being able to fall asleep. And so, you know, I see people with insomnia chronically who who say things like, you know, I was feeling really sleepy and then I got in bed and my brain woke up, right? And that's just a great example of what's called conditioned arousal that happens as a consequence of kind of night after night of having this kind of like, anxiety in there that is is kind of disrupting what was previously a really um kind of important sleep facilitating relationship with the bed and so that is you know certainly part of um kind of the foundation of what insomnia is and potentially is uh you know contributing to some of these um dreams that people are talking about
1: is it more or less harmful at the stage or age you are when you have these? The reason I ask is I remember seeing a guardian headline that said bad dreams in middle age could be sign of dementia risk, for example, Hmm. Dr. Prather.
2: Hmm. You know, I mean, there has been a lot of interesting work that's been going on in the context of sleep and, um, you know, risk and progression of uh, neurodegenerative diseases Um, And I think we're, you know, we're still really trying to figure out if there are clear signatures within kind of the sleep architecture that might be important. Um, You know, I think people are beginning to appreciate the role of sleep in general, and its potential fragmentation as something that might put people on the road for that. But I, you know, I also am like very cautious about kind of worrying a whole bunch of listeners about because they're having <laughs> dreams, <Yeah>. stress dreams. <laughs> we don't want to you know, stress you
1: out. Right, right,
2: right. I mean, it's Friday. Let's just like let's enjoy the weekend or like not, <laughs> not, not work out, get too worked up about it. But I mean, you know, I mean, I think I, importantly, sleep is clearly important for the brain. Um, uh, whether that is something that uh, is, con- you know, clearly a marker for uh, neurodegenerative diseases, I don't think we're there yet. Um, but certainly there are, you know, tons of researchers around the world that are that are investigating that.
1: We're talking with Dr. Eric Prather, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF, and Kelly Bulkley, Dream Researcher and Director of Sleep and Dream Database. And you, our listeners, will have more about dreams after the break. Stay with us. I'm Nina
3: Bye-bye.
1: If you can't tell already from the music, we're talking about dreams this hour, in particular stress dreams, just because they seem to be so common these days and the commonalities among our stress dreams with Kelly Bulkley, Dream Researcher and Director at Sleep at Dream Database, and Eric Prather, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. And of course, you, our listeners, are joining us at 866-733-6786. And let me go to Rylan in Alameda. Hi, Rylan.
6: Oh, well, hello. How are you?
1: I'm well. Great to hear from you. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it is. Thank you for reminding us.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's daytime away somewhere, but hey, hello. Um, So I was giving you a call because I was very interested in in the discussion that you were having um, regarding collective unconsciousness Mm. uh, when you're going into the higher um, world. Lower, I suppose, levels of uh, REM cycles. So, do you think that when you're in REM sleep, if you have these, you know, bit going back to your earlier discussion, these collective unconsciousnesses, um, you, are they amplified as you are going into REM cycles? What uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Kelly Buckley?
0: Yeah, no, that's a a great question. Um, uh, So first off, uh, as far as we know, dreaming can occur in non-REM sleep too. It seems to happen most often in REM sleep. Uh, But dreaming seems to be occurring in various ways. I mean, the mind is active throughout the the sleep cycle. There does seem to be something special in this state that we call REM sleep where the brain revs up, and Eric could probably say more about this, the brain revs up to a very intense level of, uh, arousal, uh, that seems to amplify whatever is going on. So Carl Jung's idea of a collective unconscious is one way of accounting for the some of the cross-cultural uh, phenomena and symbolism that we see in dreams. Not everybody believes in that. I you know I can go either way, even conversationally, but um, certainly in REM sleep, uh, the brain, and this is one of the evolutionary mysteries really of sleep, is that when we're lying down and motionless, not doing anything. Why four or five times every night does the brain crank itself up to neuroelectrical levels that are as high or higher than what we have in waking? So that's I think it's because we need to dream, but that's you know that's an open open debate in the field. Mm.
1: What do you think, Dr. Prather? We need to dream.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean I think I I look to um conditions where dreaming is fragmented, right? So in post-traumatic stress disorder, as an example, um, REM fragmentation is one of the commonly observed phenomenon. And, you know, my colleague at UC Berkeley, Matt Walker, has done a lot of work trying to understand kind of the role of, say, emotional memory um, in the context of REM sleep. And this idea, this kind of theory that You know, one of the things that REM sleep does is try to dissociate the emotional salience or experience from the memory, right? It kind of peels off that emotional piece of it because when you remember something, for example, you don't want to feel all the feelings that go along with that every single time, right? But you need the information. And so one of the things that happens in post-traumatic stress disorder is kind of this, uh, you know, kind of remembering and re-experiencing these really negative events. And so, you know, the theory is that potentially REM plays an important role and since it's fragmented, maybe that, that is, you know, why those experiences happen for those individuals. Um, I mean, that's just, that's just one that, you know, I'm aware of. I mean, obviously dreaming, you know, we've been kind of discussing dreaming for millennia, uh, (laughs) As humans, and so you know, I, th- I think uh, you know, obviously, it, it plays an important role. But as as Kelly mentioned, there are a lot of unknowns about why we sleep, um, but clearly, it's it's a biological imperative, and so we're you know, we have a lot of work to do to try to kind of suss that out.
1: Let me go to caller Raza in San Carlos. Hi, Raza.
6: Hello. Yes. Thank you for taking my call. That was great discussion. I have a very general question about, in general, psychology. Human psychology is very Eurocentric. Mm. And uh, dreams especially are super Eurocentric. Uh, the whole science was developed in Europe. And you mentioned metaphors and all that. The metaphors that you interpret, <clears throat> that you use to interpret dreams, are diabolically different in different cultures.
1: Mm-hmm. For
6: example, a person living in Sahara Desert would not dream of a car driving at 90 miles on a freeway. Right. Uh, so things like that. But how do you guys, uh, like psychologists in general, uh, kind of um, incorporate that in their science and especially the dream analysis? Oh.
1: Raza, thanks. Uh, Kelly, I'll start with you on that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, no, that. Thank you. That's that's the reason uh, why my uh, academic background is in religious studies, uh, psychology of religion. I discovered very early on, more or less, what you uh, said that Western psychology has a very narrow uh, view of dreaming compared to how other cultures, other periods of history, have looked at dreams. So, my my academic background is in uh, the history of religions, cross-cultural studies, anthropology, as well as psychology, for this exact reason. And, and, and I think that your point about metaphors varying uh, from culture to culture—that's that's absolutely true. Uh, we, you know, researchers we we talk about are there some universal metaphors relating to uh, human bodies that might be the same everywhere, or aspects of physics, you know, up and down. You know, hot and cold kind of things, um, but but you're absolutely right that the challenge I think for Western psychology right now is to open its awareness to these other traditions and other ways of looking at dreams that have very different premises about what matters, what's real, what what's good in life, and uh, we can learn from that. I'm I'm pretty sure.
1: Kelly Buckley, what are the community benefits of sharing our dreams. I understand that you feel like there really is one in yeah. the act of sharing what our dreams are, as we've been doing today on this show.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well dream sharing is a, a anthropologist considered a, a cultural universal. It's something we find in all cultures through history, pretty much. You, you look around, you find people, at some point or other, they talk about their dreams. They have ways of interpreting their dreams. Um, it's To be honest, this is one of the ways in which Western culture has uh, narrowed our engagements with dreaming by emphasizing their role in, in psychotherapy, which of course is important, but dreams are not only symptoms of pathology. Dreams have their natural healthy rhythms, and in Western society right now, there are fewer spaces uh, for sharing dreams in a comfortable, normal uh, way. Some 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 survey research I've done has found there's are some uh, racial and ethnic differences around this that, uh, for example, blacks and Hispanics in uh, the US uh, are more likely to share their dreams with others than are whites. Um, so there's there's some cultural dynamics, I think, involved in this. But as a general matter, we're all natural dreamers. I think we're all natural dream sharers too. And if you're with someone you trust, you know, a friend, a family member, Uh, it's fun. You know, you share your dreams. You don't have to play Sigmund Freud and, you know, analyze it to the nth degree. Just my theory, you play with it. You see, look at the images, the feelings, think about how it connects to life, where it might be leading you. There it is. Yeah.
1: And as you say, there is this sense when somebody is sharing their dreams with you that they're sharing a piece of themselves because it's kind of an intimate and inner world when you think about dreaming Sarah and for that very reason, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, and for that very reason, dream sharing can be a powerful form of social bonding, creating trust. Dream sharing groups among multiple people, I'm, I'm working with a group of artists, international artists, uh, call ourselves the Dream Mapping Project, and we're doing this sort of international artistic dream sharing that's that's amazing, and and people learn things they would never learned about each other uh, through this process. So, yeah.
1: Well, Sarah writes, "Oh, I've had these sorts of dreams for years, and the best part is waking up and realizing that nope, I am no longer in college. <laughs> that wave of <laughs> relief that wave of relief is so refreshing. Dr. Prather, is there a way where because you're you were talking about the loop earlier, right? Is there a way that when you wake up from a stressful dream, uh, <laughs> any tricks or tips for?" getting that wave of relief that doesn't end up affecting our day and mood?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I mean, I, I, I think certainly as the, as, as you were kind of describing that relief is real, right. Um, and I think, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, sometimes people will have uh, difficulty kind of moving out of that experience and kind of into something that is is more safe and more calming. Um, you know, in, in our work, typically when people wake up, say, from, you know, feeling anxious and we often have them kind of, if, if it goes on for too long, kind of to move out of the bed uh, to kind of do a reset. You can also do that in bed. I mean, certainly people can have uh, things that they find comforting that can help you know sh- shift their mind a little bit. Uh, we do a lot of work uh, helping people with do kind of relaxation in bed, uh, kind of deep breathing, kind of counting diaphragmatic breath type type work, which can often kind of upregulate that parasympathetic nervous system, that kind of rest and digest system that will help facilitate people uh, getting back to sleep. Um, but I don't know if there's like a a, a great way to kind of um kind of do that similar experience of relief because i i certainly know that experience and uh you know um you know sometimes just kind of savoring that is (laughs) is is an important piece of it too
1: yeah dr eric brather is professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCSF. Kelly Bulkley is Dream Researcher and Director at Sleep and Dream Database. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller David in Daly City. Hi, David. Thanks for waiting. Thank you. Uh, very briefly, I. Can't
6: wait to go to sleep. I put my head on the pillow, relax, and tell myself a story as I have since I was a child. And I go to sleep, and I have the same dreams that most people have that that are unnerving. But I dream lucidly. Uh, you know, I say, "Okay, this is a damn dream." I zip up my pants <laughs> and go on. Uh, and uh, how how common is lucid dreaming?
1: Yeah, so you can do that in your dream, uh, Kelly Buckley. I'll go you first on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. self-awareness in, in dreaming is something, again, uh, there's a long uh, history. Uh, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism all speak of, of uh, extending meditation practices into sleep. So developing conscious awareness, mindfulness in the sleep state, as well as waking, is for hundreds of years been a goal in those traditions. So this is something humans have known about. Uh, in our contemporary society, yes, it, the term we use is lucid dreaming. Uh, it's it's more common among children, for sure. Younger people. Um, it can be learned. There are devices that can help, uh, but it but it doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody can go lucid just by by force of will. Uh, it's controversial. I should also say uh, there are people uh, people, for example, who think highly of Carl Jung's works that uh, don't think we should be. Consciously pushing things around in our dreams, we should let the collective unconscious enlighten us with what's going on, uh, and not bring the ego into into dreaming. It sounds like uh, David, this is just sort of an additional fun aspect of your of your dreams or your your nightly adventures. So, uh, but 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 it is a con- it's a controversial topic as well.
1: Hmm. Are there directions for potential solutions for helping people uh, deal with? Stressful dreams and therefore sleep better, Dr. Prather?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think if, uh, you know, I mean, like managing stress is is like, certainly the, 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 the first step, right? I mean, the, the idea is that it is kind of moving into our, it's seeping into our night. Um, and so, you know, certainly... There is kind of how to manage those daytime things going on. Um, You know, we do a lot of work on with like mindfulness meditation as a tool for people. But I mean, I even think around the bedtime, it's one of the things that I see so chronically, particularly when it comes to to work stress, is this tendency for people to kind of think that they're like a computer that like, oh, Mm. you know, I can just turn off and go to bed. But, it you know, it really is more of a transition. You know, we need to turn the page. And invest in our sleep in the same that we, way that we invest in our day. And so, you know, making sure that people build in that time for that transition, that wind down, certainly increases the chances that they'll be able to get to sleep and likely stay asleep. The other thing that I would say is, you know, oftentimes people have this tendency to worry it, when they wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, we've all had that experience of waking up at three in the morning and like your mind starts worrying. And sometimes that's due to a stress dream, And sometimes it's just, you know... Human nature. And I think one of the tools that we find really helpful in our clinic is actually having people schedule worry earlier in the <laughs> evening or in the day, like actually making it an in, intentional to actually run through that stuff. And what we find is that for a lot of people, when they do that consistently, that it, it doesn't have the same time to kind of build up in the in, in the night. Um, and, and then you can also say when it does say, look, I have this scheduled for tomorrow. It's already in my scheduling book. I'm going to worry about it then. And just kind of having that ritual and that plan in place really helps to reduce some of that stress that people experience in the evening and at night.
1: Well, what do you say to people, Dr. Prather, who, um, deliberately stay up and cut into their sleep because they're so frustrated that they really haven't had any me time right? (laughs) because of work and other things, which I feel like has become more of a thing during the pandemic.
2: Yeah. Bedtime revenge, procrastination absolutely is a real thing. And a, a lot has been written about it more recently. And I think, you know, it, it is, I, I totally get it. Um, but I think the, the, the argument that I would make is that by doing that, you're shorting yourself on sleep. And we know that basically when people get more sleep, more quality, more quantity, um, and get what they need, uh, they, they're, they're better versions of themselves the next day, right? We're more productive, um, we're better partners, we're better parents, we're more empathetic um, with other people, and kind of our, our cognitions are, are sharper. And so, you know, though I, I understand that, I mean, I think that, um, you know, sometime, in some cases, that's a daytime problem that we need to figure out how to kind of take back some of our time. And, you know, we could have a whole other show about the societal pressures that drive insufficient sleep. But I mean, I I think just like people invest in time to exercise or focus on nutrition, the same should be done for sleep and uh, we'll all be a a bit better off.
1: Yeah, better people and hopefully sweeter dreamers. Well, thank you, Dr. (laughs) Dr. Prather. Appreciate you being on with us. And Kelly Bulkley, Kelly Bulkley, thanks to you as well.
0: Yes. Happy to be here.
1: And my thanks to Jennifer Ng, who produced today's segment. Forum is also produced by Caroline Smith, Grace Juan, Marlena Jackson, Retondo. Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Posse Kelly Campos. Even to Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, and Holly Kernan are our fearless leaders. And you are listening to Forum, I'm Mina Kim, Sweet Dreams.
3: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.